You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome, everyone, to the Book of Nature podcast, your quasi-regular foray into all things science, faith, and everywhere in between, between uh, three practicing Christians who are also scientists. Well, um, it's been about the last episode we had our uh, crossover, and before that it was uh, just Charles and I, so um, I think we're all three back together, right? Right? Here we are. Okay, good. Good. and uh, as we're recording this, uh, we are getting um, through an extended cold snap uh, that has uh, come from uh, Charles' whereabouts. Thanks, Charles. I'm blaming Canada. <laughs> um, a couple of nights ago, um, so we had some snow here in Indiana um, a couple of nights ago, uh, Monday, uh, during the day on Monday, actually, we got about three inches, and and uh, the bottom fell out that night. We got down to about 8 in my house. And then the night after that, I actually got down to like uh, about 2.8 was the low on my weather station, which is just crazy for this time of year. It's the definitely broke some records. I think actually Indianapolis broke its low re- uh, temperature record twice on the same day um, in the morning and then uh, in the evening before midnight on the same day when the temperature dropped back below the original record so mm. <laughs> so yep. uh yes uh, i'm i believe that uh, todd you got in on some of this action too so oh yeah, yeah no no we we uh well unofficially hit zero but uh but it, it, the official the official low was one ah, okay. um uh, yeah. at the coldest of it right so um and that was uh, if you don't remember if you're just now um joining our podcast that was uh todd peddler um, and he is professor of physics at um, uh, in Decorah, Iowa, at uh, Luther College. Uh, you are right. What's that? You are right. I'm yeah. Still, sometimes I'm still I, were, I I was like, oh wait, I'm going to say Decorah <laughs> College in Luther, Iowa, or something <laughs> like that, because you know I'm really good at you know flipping words there. Um, and uh, you may have also heard um, the person whom I blamed for the cold. Um, that would be Charles Hackney, who was uh, also a professor of, of psychology at uh, in Karenport, Saskatchewan. And uh, yeah, I'm going to get that mixed up again, your, your college. Um, <laughs> please. There we go. Associate Help Professor me. of Psychology at Briarcrest College Briarcrest, Seminary in Karenport, Saskatchewan. So not so okay. Karen Port Seminary and Briar Crescent. No, wait, no, Briar. I got. I did <laughs> hey, that on purpose. You know the that flagship guys get this yeah. wrong all the time. I know. Okay? I've noticed. You, you still so I don't feel nearly you know, as bad. Yeah. Can't get Michael Farmer to say Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Yeah, I can even say that for Nathan Gilmore. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I just need to write it down and put it right in front of my face. But I always think, <laughs> oh, I'll remember this. Okay. Anyway, Briar Crest, Karen Port, Saskatchewan, home of the Saskatchewan Screamers. Okay. Uh, all right. So today um, we are going to be talking about the ways that human beings think, and hopefully they think better than what I just did right there um, in trying to 
give our op- uh, introduce our uh, co-hosts. But specifically, we're going to be talking about the the two categories of thought process processes that most of us have heard about at some point, and that would be abstract versus concrete thinking. Almost everybody has heard of these phrases, um, but it's surprisingly tricky to define what they are. So today we're going to discuss these uh, concepts. So, and we're actually going to probably be having a fairly abstract discussion about these matters, with hopefully enough concrete examples sprinkled in for balance. Um, see what I did there. Uh, so let's get right to it. Uh, Todd, since you were absent from the last episode before our crossover, why don't you take the first topic here? Tell us what do these terms mean? What abstract and concrete when it comes to uh, human thinking? Uh, how do they differ? And of course, Charles, you can come in at any time. Uh, take it away. I'm sure he will. Um, one one thing that I, I just by way of getting into the subject, um, something I talk about with my students quite frequently, um, and I and I do this both in um, in physics classes, but also in the first year common course that all of our first year students take, um, as I talk about knowledge and how one knows something. Um, I talk about what the objects of knowledge are. Uh, And one of the things that comes up in that discussion very frequently is whether it is possible and how it is possible to know something that's not concrete. Um, Where this usually goes is a discussion of how someone knows that, let's say, two times three is six. Um, We talk about you know, how such a plain thing as that is demonstrable easily with concrete objects like uh, two uh, groups of three apples. Um, mm. You know, and then we go on to say, oh, well, okay, what about 75 times six? Um, mm-hmm. And you could, you, you could do that concretely also, uh, although it'd be a little bit more challenging. But what about 895,256 times 3.99 million? That's, that's a practical impossibility. I mean, even if you could get... Uh, you know, 895,000 some odd groups of 4 million objects, you die before you're done counting them. Even if you were counting at something like five objects per second, it would take 200,000 years or more. Hmm. Um, so we have to rely on mathematical facts, the operation of, of multiplication and, and the laws of mathematics. So it's an example of something that is abstract. It's an abstract hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, with the established laws of mathematics, we can know with certainty, without a shadow of a doubt, the product that I gave you. Um, we could calculate the exact number um, that's of order 36 trillion. Uh, we can know the exact value because we know how to take uh, and raise a number to a power. We can uh, give you the, the exact value of 17 raised to the 17th power. And that's you know some number that's close to 10 to the 21st power. Um, mm-hmm. Those established laws are not demonstrated on any sort of concrete procedure, but by an abstract principle, ultimately the laws of mathematical induction. Uh, but they're every bit as much, uh, the laws themselves and, and even the, the, you know, the calculations that we do, they're every bit as uh, much as uh, objects of our knowledge as an easily countable collection of six apples might be. Um, and I offer that example up front just to address a concern that sometimes I hear raised by my students that abstract thinking isn't very practical. Um, 
uh, I hear that more from my non-science non-science students than my science students. My science okay. students typically are, are uh, remember, I teach both. <laughs> I teach yes, a lot of yes. both of them. Yeah. Um, but on the contrary, I would argue, actually, it's it's indeed very practical, if not essential, at least in some spheres of human endeavor. So right. what is the distinction? What is the the difference between abstract and concrete thinking? Um, so there's a number of things, a number of distinctions that we might make, but let me just give a few. Concrete thinking involves objects that are present or at least physically realizable. You can get next to them. You can see them. You can, you can physically interact with them. When one is thinking concretely, one's thinking of particular examples of things, things that are um, in particular relationship to one another. Um, concrete thinking is less about general ideas and principles, more about <clears throat> particular objects or examples or instances. Hmm. Um, abstract thinking, on the other hand, I would argue, is much more about the underlying principles of things and generalities and tendencies and models, particularly speaking as a scientist, that can represent such things. Mm -hmm. When when you're thinking in an abstract sense, you're often engaged in assembling a model or a way of understanding that might be based on some particular examples, but can encompass all similar examples in a single way of unifying them and explaining them together. Um, abstract thinking necessarily gets away from um, or abstracts from, to use an unfortunate choice of words, from the concrete instances, even though it is very deeply connected to them or can be. Um, so I think one of the more helpful ways to think about abstract uh, knowledge or concepts is to think about models. Hmm. Um I can go a bit further So, so with these distinctions. So I want to take a, a particular example. So I'm going to bring Charles in here because I need you both. Um, <laughs> as, I as I understand it, Charles, I, you've ha you have had dogs in the past, right? That is correct. You, okay. <clears throat> so give me, uh, tell me one of, one of your memorable dogs and uh, what's, what's he or she like? Uh, one of my memorable, memorable dogs uh, was a German shepherd whose name was Sergeant. Uh, who managed to defy all stereotypes about uh, German shepherds being smart. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this, this was a dog. Uh, you, you could throw a ball for him down the hallway, and uh, he didn't have the brains to stop running when he got to the end of the hallway. Yeah. <laughs> hey, fetch. <laughs> Slam. Yeah. yeah. It, what is he physically like? Uh, physically, uh, br the usual uh, shepherd uh, brown and black combination, um, moderate uh, size. Weight? Weight. Um, yeah. Big enough to be picked up by a grown man with two arms. <laughs> okay. Um, Dan, what about you? you have a yes, um, I've had both had dogs in the past, and I have a dog right now. He just turned uh -huh. eight, actually. His name is Boson. Um, and he is a very heavy boson. Um, he is <laughs> about 100 pounds, and he's some kind of uh, mix of a uh, Bernese mountain dog. Uh, there's probably some Rottweiler in there, some of his litter mates with Rottweiler markings, uh, maybe some Collie or, or Shepherd, and, and who knows what else. Uh -huh. um, but he's a, he's, a, he's a great dog. Um, he's pretty smart in his own way um and he has got the most finely tuned um guard sense of any dog i've ever known 
Um, he could probably hear a gnat burp at 100 yards and will bark at almost anything that he thinks he sees or hears outside. Okay. And uh, But he's a great dog. He's fun to play with. He, he unlike Charles's dog, loves to play fetch. It's like that was in, inborn in him. Didn't have to mm-hmm. teach him. Um, but he's not always the best at telling me what he wants. His way of asking for what he wants is to sit there um, and whine and occasionally bark and just look at me. And when I think, okay, do you want to go out? I get up and walk to the door. He just stands there. Um, I play with him a bit. He just stands there. And then eventually he will, will figure it out. But it's like, why don't you just go to the door if you want to go out? It just doesn't do it. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's my dog. And I also have two cats. Yeah. He's a big dog. He's a big dog. hundred pounds. Yep. What's his color? Uh, it's black, white, and brown. But mostly black. If I mostly black, picture. yeah. Mostly black. Charles? White, black on the top, white on the bottom. <laughs> Sergeant is typical German Shepherd Alsatian type. Yep, the uh, that black and brown combo. And his hair is long or short? Uh, not as long as uh, the photo that Dan sent. Oh, so, okay. Okay. I mean, if I, I imagine if I, if we looked at the if we looked at pictures of your two dogs, they would look quite different. Yes, they would. How can they both be dogs if there is such a distinction in terms of their intelligence, in terms of their ability? I mean, you got on the one hand, you got a smart dog, you got a dog who plays fetch, who likes to play fetch, and you got a dog who doesn't at all seem to have the wits to play fetch. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a dog that is a big hundred pound beast and um, perhaps medium sized dog that one could easily pick up. What is it about them? Why, if if one is a dog, isn't the other something else? Ooh. What is it? What 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 is it about? What is it about them? So yeah, I mean that's the answer to that is surprisingly convoluted when you think about it. You can really get into the weeds. <laughs> of course, of course you can, but that's what the show is all about, right. is getting into the weeds. All right. Let me let me let me let me let me further ask something this that let's yeah. suppose that we lined the two of them up and we put a big spotlight behind them. Mm. And then looked at what uh was cast upon the wall in doing so. Would you be able to identify them as dogs? Depends on what angle you were shining. Well, the light. let's say let's say uh, directly, like <laughs> right. from a side, from the side, from the side, and you are illuminating a wall which is perpendicular to the light coming in. Most certainly, most probably, yes. All right, um, but those shadows are not dogs. No, but they enable us to identify these creatures as dogs. Right, they have some resemblance to. The dog himself. Boson's shadow looks like Boza, uh, Boson, yep. right? Yep. Sergeant's shadow looks like Sergeant. I'm with what you. I'm what I'm what I'm driving at here is that those shadows represent something about the dog that allows us to learn something about them. I can learn about their size, I can learn about their shape. Yep. But they're not themselves dogs. Right. Uh, but they do have they do have something in common in that they are something of an impression of dogs. Mm-hmm. What Plato does in the Republic in 
various sections. And I, I should at this point advertise Core Curriculum. Core Curriculum is another show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. I have uh, recorded the first episode of a new series on Plato's Republic that's coming up. So uh, you should be on the lookout for that. In the Republic, there is a discussion of the idea of what we, what many people simply refer to as Plato's or Platonic forms. The shadows themselves are shadows of dogs. The dogs themselves, Plato would argue, are shadows of something which you might call dogness. Right? If the two of them right. are platonic form, man. they're common, right? Yeah. There's something that they have in common. And the whole collection of dogs in the world all share common enough characteristics that we can define what a dog is mm -hmm. by those commonalities. Right. What would happen if all the dogs on the planet suddenly vanished? Hmm. That you're supposed to go, oh. Yeah, that I would say be that. sad. But would dogness cease to exist? Uh, no. <laughs> yes. We would. I'm going to say we, yes. Ah, oh, you concrete thinker, you. Um, <laughs> well, okay. So the, I'm always the one who's got to overthink these things. So yeah. But yeah, I would could, say could you still no. It of would a dog? not. It, could you it, conceive of a dog? Yes. We're not going to talk about the eternality of dogness here. No. It's a different question for yeah, a different right. show. See, the given that we know that dogs have existed, even if they yes. all stopped existing, and we, we know, then the concept of dogness would not disappear. Is, is but, what if we used, but, but what if we used a time machine and made it so that there never were uh, actual um, instantiations of the category of dog? That that's also a topic for another show. Yeah, uh, so that <laughs> that is a good. Get back to that's what I was actually thinking of <laughs> was was whether we also deleted all memory of dogs. Ah, and right. if we did that, then then it's much more of a thorny question. Because I, I mean, because then then we could be talking about things like dinosaurs. Oh, in well, but we indeed. do have some idea though. We have some traces of dinosaurs. If we hadn't had any evidence that dinosaurs existed. Would we have a? Would we be able? Would there be such a concept a of category? dinosaurs out there? You know, that's well, that's that, dinosaurness. Absolutely, that's just it. So, yeah. so dogs, concrete, particular examples of dogs, are something we can talk about in the here and now. Yeah. Suppose they passed away, we would retain the idea of dogness, and that idea of dogness would still be real. Mm-hmm. I, I maybe another example that might be closer to something that Plato would have talked about because the, the dogness doesn't exist in the Republic. But um, I, I would ask you then, brothers, what is a circle? It's the set of all points equidistant from another point. <laughs> okay, you're already defining it in certain mathematical terms. Yep, it's but, a cookie but shape. But there, but there are it's a cookie shape before you've eaten, right? We can come up with and point to all kinds of circular things. Mm -hmm. And we teach our children, right, uh, what a circle is by concrete example. But ultimately, we end up teaching them what you just elucidated, which is the locus of points, which we call a circle, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
that abstract idea of a circle, because there is no perfect circle in the world, right? There is nothing that is perfectly circular. Right. But we have this concept of a perfect circle. Mm -hmm. Even when we draw one on a sheet of paper, it's not a perfect representation of that one form, right. if you will. There is the, this is really the difference. The idea of taking from particular examples and talking about particular examples that you would talk to a young child about, those are going to be concrete. We're going to do concrete thinking with them because necessarily in many ways, their abilities to think in the abstract take a little while to develop. Once we can get there, though, we can talk about these kind of universal things, these kind of things that we can actually conceive of without actually having to see a circle before us. And and then we can do things with that, right? right then right. we can talk about the relationship between the diameter of a circle and its circumference. Right. We don't ever get exactly pi, but we can calculate exactly pi, if you will, using that idealized abstract form of those of that particular set of points. Mm -hmm. Um now, what where what this has to do with the price of tea in China is, you know, when we get to our own fields, itself an abstract concept. But. <laughs> Indeed, mm -hmm. uh, Go ahead. Uh, absolutely, just like uh, just like the average temperature on the surface of the Earth. But that's beside the point. Um, <laughs> shall we then um, talk quickly? Uh, I guess maybe each of us about the importance of model building. Because model building is an abstract process, right? It is a process of building an abstract model. Sure. An abstract, sorry, an abstract uh, image or a shadow. Well, not a shadow. It's the real thing, right? Newton's laws. Right. Newton's laws are um, something which enable us actually to do a lot of concrete thinking yep. about real examples. But in order to do it perfectly or as near to perfectly as is possible, we have to be very exhaustive in the way we deal with it. But it is often more helpful to idealize the situation. And right, this is where right. you get spherical cows. This is where you get frictionless tables and mm -hmm. so forth. Mm -hmm. All right. So in physics, we're always building models. We're mm -hmm. always using abstract principles to describe concrete phenomena. Yep. And and for you, I know this, the same is true. Yeah, I mean, I just was teaching um, my, my class, I was talking about the dynamics of supercell thunderstorms today, and I was using a lot of conceptual models and abstract uh, thought and uh, simplified mathematical models to explain some of the concepts. And uh, at various points in the lecture, I was trying to do my best to bring things back to the concrete by giving concrete examples, but making sure that I was explaining to the students I think I brought this up on more than one occasion that these were conceptual models that um, where the reality was more complicated and muddied. But if you understood these basic simplified models, you got a lot, a lot of the way there to understanding how these storms work. And so this was in definitely just just got out of an example. I do this yep. all the time and and mm -hmm. not only in teaching, but in, and in research as well. So, sure. um, yeah. 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 So. Yeah, Charles. Oh, yeah. In uh, psychology, we um, you know we talk about uh, you know conceptual representations of things uh, in order to understand them all the time. I mean, especially since uh, at, you know in psychology, what we're doing is we're trying to describe uh, things like you know, mental states mm -hmm. uh, that we have not yet uh, been figured out how to uh, physically observe. 
so we come up with a whole bunch of these constructs um, that do a good job, some better than others, of describing our observations, uh, but we know are not the same thing as uh, the reality themselves. So something like a personality trait. Uh, so you might say, you know, so let's talk about, you know, extroversion as a personality trait. Well, we know extroversion is not a physical thing. Uh, and, you know, I can't, you know, open somebody's skull and put in a, um, you know, dipstick and uh, measure their extroversion or something like that. <laughs> even, even though in the 19th oh. century they might have tried. They might have tried. Uh, there we go. Uh, yeah, or, um, you know, psychological disorders. I mean, I mean, psychological disorders are clearly real things, but our understanding of what they are are these abstract concepts. So if you have something like narcissistic personality disorder, uh, you're talking about uh, a particular cluster of patterns in the way people think and feel and behave mm. that we have, you know, we've come up with this concept in order to explain it. Uh, so, yeah, we talk about this stuff all the time. We also talk about this uh, in cognitive psychology, you know, a little bit more directly connected uh, with what you were talking about, Todd, when uh, we start uh, asking uh, how these uh, categories uh, exist uh, in the human mind. Uh, you know, what's the basis of them? Is it uh, a category that uh, you know, consists of a list of features uh, and if so, what happens if, you know, certain features are listen, uh, missing? So, for example, you know, uh, what happens if I see a three-legged dog? Uh, well, I mean, you know, part of my category of dogs is that dogs have three, have four legs. So if I see a three-legged dog, that doesn't make it not a dog. So we can't be absolute about that. And, um, you know, I mean, uh, Eleanor Roche, uh, cognitive psychologist over, I think she's at Berkeley. I might be wrong about that, but uh, I'll have to look her up later. Hmm. <coughs> um talks about, uh, you know, mental representation uh, in terms of fuzzy categories, uh, where the, the, the boundaries between something like what is a dog and what is not a dog, or, you know, what is an apple and not an apple. These, they're fuzzy boundaries that uh, exist in our heads. Uh, or, you know, uh, you know are, is, are prototypes uh, what's at the center of our mental representation. So if we start talking about, say, you know, dog, what is dog? You know, what is the category of dog and we start thinking about our mental categories of dogs uh well what i'm doing uh to work with the example that uh is working is you know it, in my mind there is sergeant the german shepherd uh objects which resemble sergeant the german shepherd are dogs objects which do not resemble uh sergeant are not dogs um so you know is, is it a prototype approach a feature matching approach some sort of com combined uh prototype feature matching approach oh yeah so we get into the stuff all the time. So, uh, yes, you know, lot of lot of abstract concepts that we are using to represent, uh, you know, observable patterns mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in people's behavior. And I and I think that one of the things that so I'm I'm glad you went down the direction you did because, and this will sort of be I, I think a good transition point for for us to move on to something else. But you know. One of the things that one does in constructing these models is a deductive approach, right? Where you're looking at all of these examples of this phenomenon or all these examples that are instances of this kind of thing. And you try to put them together to form some kind of, uh, some kind of model, some kind of understanding of what's going on, some kind of understanding or category into which we can fit all these things. Which then, in the scientific process, will enable us to go beyond, 
to go beyond that model to make predictions, to um, to be able to make statements which uh, rely on that abstract model mm-hmm. to uh, to 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 then bring it back to the concrete. Yeah. So we, off air, we were talking about the fact that really concrete and abstract thinking are they're really hard to completely separate because we're often going back and forth, especially in the sciences. Yes. But I would also argue just in life in general between abstract and 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 and, and concrete um, because they're intimately related to one another. Right. So when you were all talking there, I was thinking of another example of. Uh, to get away from dogs for a minute, but to a related topic, we know that dogs exist, right? <laughs> but yep. our abstract uh, model of a dog, that this sort of so-called you know platonic form dog or the concept dogness, mm-hmm. we can make a, a a similar category for something that, to our knowledge, does not exist. So one quintessential example that people use is our unicorns, right? So far as we know, there are no such thing as unicorns in the real world in that there are no uh, horse-like um, mammals which have a um, single twisted horn coming out of their forehead, right? There are things that approximate this in various ways um, but uh, and uh, are seemingly related to unicorns but are not unicorns that anybody would ever uh, say, oh, yeah, that's a unicorn. Um, but yet we can easily come up with a conceptual model of what a unicorn would look like, how it would behave. Presumably, it would behave a lot like a horse. Um, and, uh, and even start predicting how, what kinds of things might come about if there was a, actual unicorns and what, what would they use their horn for and things like that. And we mm-hmm. can come up with coherent stories about that um, despite the fact that these things don't actually exist. Mm-hmm. So um, that I think this kind of abstract thinking that piggybacks off the concrete, which I think unicorns are that, uh, we, we, we re- it would be really difficult to have a concept of a unicorn if we didn't already have a concept of a horse, for example. Mm. Um, but we can piggyback off the concrete um, and make abstract things, um, ideas about things that don't actually exist in that way, um, but can help us... Um, understand more about the world regardless and I mean we've, we've good examples of this are world building for in science fiction uh, stories right we can take some abstract concept uh, of like say warp drive right warp drive as far as we know does not exist um, at least we haven't figured out a way to do it yet um, if it is even possible um, but we can come up with what things might behave like if it was possible mm-hmm. so I think this is another ab- ab- um aspect of this that goes not only beyond science but you know into art and into storytelling and and these are all things that human beings do well right so Uh, no to use the tagline yeah absolutely i mean that um you know the the example i was going to go down was 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 exactly this that you know the world of fiction is a perfect example of how we take um concrete reality take examples of human interaction um, uh, whether it's individuals interacting or individuals with groups or individuals with tragic circumstances and so forth. And the richness of, fi- uh, of fiction comes about because, uh, b- because people are inventive and are able to, to create scenarios, to create um, re- reasonable, plausible, 
or perhaps in the case of some fantasy, implausible, but nevertheless interesting. Internally coherent, uh, right? It, yeah, extensions of the concrete that we see based on an understanding of the human condition. Mm -hmm. And the richest, most interesting fiction is that which has characters who are who resemble perhaps people we know or... Uh, or, or, or perhaps, or perhaps embody particular characteristics that we find attractive, interesting, um, despicable, uh, and 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 a world is built, as to use the language you did. Yeah. Um, and that too, you know, requires a, a a capacity both for recognition of the concrete world, but also of the abstract sort of principles that guide and govern. Uh, the way people interact together. Yeah, and I, I can't help but thinking when you were spe speaking of that, and we can even go a little bit even more abstract. There's another level of, of abstraction that comes like into fiction, for example. I'll just give mm -hmm. an example where you could try to conceive of something that nobody has any experience with. Right. So, like for example, um, I'm trying to think of who wrote this. The the color out of space was that. Uh, H.P. Lovecraft. Lovecraft, that's mm -hmm. what I thought. So uh, I, I, it's been so long since I've read this, but my recollection is that this meteor f falls and hits the earth, and it cracks open, and something in there that is some color that nobody has ever seen before. It's not a hue or shade of any of the known colors of the rainbow, but it's something completely different. Mm -hmm. um, we can conceive of something like that without being able to actually conceive of it, you know, as far as experiencing it. So we can conceive of a color mm -hmm. that there might be a colors that nobody has ever seen, you know, but we can't actually visualize them in the same way. For example, we can conceive of, and we can describe mathematically a four dimensional analog of a cube, right. Or a sphere. Right. But, um, and this is something that's occupied my mind quite a bit, actually, when I was growing up, I was thinking about this. It's like, but can any of us actually visualize what a hypercube, as they call it, actually mm. looks like in its full four-dimensional glory? Uh, I certainly can't. I'm not going to say that nobody can, uh, but it seems like one of those things that may not so beyond our experience that we can conceive of a certain level of abstraction about it, but we can't instantiate mm. it in a concrete visualization, uh, at least in the full, in its full effect, you know, we can get certain right. representations like shadows of a hypercube in a 3d space or, or what have you. Yeah. Or we can describe what people feel like, and this is what HP Lovecraft did, right? He described what happened when people saw this color and they went crazy. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But, um, without actually knowing what they were experiencing. I, so I find this kind of abstract thought, um, and really interesting in, in this regard. So. All right, so 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 now you've got two show ideas that I've just had pop into my mind. Oh boy, oh boy. <laughs> we have to do we have to do uh, a, a couple Lovecraft stories. I think that would be a fun episode to do. Mm -hmm. I am so on board with. And that. I think sure. what we need absolutely to do is a show on Edwin Abbott's Flatland. Yes, yes, absolutely. 
Okay. I that is a that. wonderful, that wonderful. Oh, you yeah. should. It's a social psychological. It is great. Study. It is great. Okay. It is. You, you really, you really need to. Yeah. I mean, it, it uses mathematical co concepts and abstraction that we're just talking about. Yeah. Um, when I in, when in, I was in, grow, when I was growing up in in when I was in uh, high school and before that, I got obsessed with Flatland and the concept of higher dimensional space. I mean, I drove my classmates absolutely nuts, and my math teacher absolutely nuts. I was—I went through a phase where I was just absolutely obsessed with that. So, did you ever I, read Sphereland? I did. Yes. Oh, okay. And okay. I read every story I could get that even hinted at <laughs> higher dimensions. Uh, and okay. yeah, and uh, I, I've run as far afield. So yeah. So. Anyway, right, let's get back to the plan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yes, we should totally do flatland. That would All that's right. a great idea. Yep. Okay, so um wow, that was great um so far. We can almost end here and and while we're while we're still on top here. <laughs> um uh, speaking of uh um I, I want to. I just realized that when we started this, I, I uh, it's it's that point of the semester, listeners, where I've already filled up all of my cash and my RAM, and I'm repeatedly swapping the disk uh, at this point with my brain. So I've neglected to introduce myself. In case you don't know, my name's Dan Dawson, and I am an assistant professor of atmospheric science uh, in. Uh, at Purdue University in West Lafayette, and I almost even got those mixed up. So anyway, uh, total. I don't think the kids are going to get the reference about swapping out disks. Oh, man. That's, so yeah. maybe we have to talk about computer <laughs> science in an episode, too. Yeah. That's, that'd be all okay. right. In, in today's ancient yeah. history lesson, we will be discussing a thing called the floppy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's, let's move on before, I, uh, before things get um, crazier here. Uh, okay, so, um, Charles... Uh, I am woefully ignorant of the scholarly literature on this topic overall, um, but I am aware that abstract thinking is popularly considered to be a distinguishing characteristic of humanity, um, and that there are actually lots of theories out there of, of how human beings develop from, uh, from childhood onward, uh, looking into to what extent that this idea, the ability to think abstractly develops over time, I'm thinking of a particular uh, psychologist, uh, and I'm going to butcher his name. It's John, John Paget. Is that it? Um, Piaget. Piaget. Yes, I butchered it. Um, uh, and so his theory and others have focused on the idea that human children start out as uh, largely concrete thinkers and then over time develop abstract thinking. I'm sure that that is a major oversimplification of his theory, but... Um, I, I want to ask you, uh, to what extent is this a, a, a useful picture of how, how, how human beings develop in their thinking? Um, how innate is it? Does it? Is it something that just develops naturally as a, in, in humans? Or does it have to be taught from, uh, like, their parents or teachers or both? How much time you got? Uh, okay, yeah, because you got some big questions in yeah, there. So uh, no. first on the idea of innateness. Um, this has been one of the classics. Uh, when we start trying to talk about uh, what is it about humans that makes humans human, uh, our rational capacities are usually right up there. Uh, to the point that, you know, this is an, uh, something that we very briefly discussed, um, you know, before we, you know, uh, started the uh, recording, uh, that, you know, that there are some theologians, especially those that were, are strongly influenced by Aristotle, uh, who uh, use our rational capacities as part of their description of uh, us being created in the image of God. 
uh, you know, God being the ultimate rational intellect and us being lesser created mm. uh, rational intellects. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, a lot of uh, comparative psychological research focuses on our capacity for abstract thought. Uh, not, and, and this gets into this uh, you know, muddying the distinction between concrete, the concrete thinking and the abstract thinking. Uh, it's not that abstract thinking is something that only humans do, uh, because we have found certain other species that are capable of um, some uh, certain levels and certain forms of abstract thought. Mm-hmm. But you know, but we blow them away. Like for example, you know, thinking we we, we were talking about thinking about things that are not physically present. Uh, the future. Uh, would be one of these. Ah. Uh, so, you know, yes. for, for a while, uh, researchers uh, were convinced that the most that any non-human animal species could think into the future was about 20 minutes. Uh, now, that that record got broken uh, substantially uh, by the corvids. Uh, so that's the family of birds that includes the, the ravens, crows, and jays. Uh, so there's a study um, uh, several years ago uh, that uh, gave us some indications that the western scrub jay is capable of thinking up to one day in the future uh, which for you know for a bird is incredible um, especially since they don't have anything even remotely resembling a mammalian neocortex uh, or uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> any of the you know brain parts that we use for our higher thought processes uh, hum- humans on the other hand we can think decades into the future we can contemplate our eventual mortality and all that fun stuff even if we um, don't want to Right. Or we don't do it right. very well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Don't get me started because then I'm going to go off on a whole terror management theory thing and we're not coming back for days if uh, I do that. Uh, don't but get yes, Charles but, started. That's right. That That's a useful life lesson, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was me restraining myself right there. Okay. Before I launched. Okay. Let's get on Piaget. So Piaget, uh, yes, did... Uh, Piaget is one of the most influential developmental psychologists. Uh, You could easily argue the most influential when it comes to uh, children's cognitive development. Uh, This idea that the difference between a small child and a grown-up is not just the amount of accumulated information, but the way in which we think. And uh, Piaget gave us a a theory, uh, a set of stages... And this idea that it goes from the concrete to the abstract uh, is actually a, a fairly good summary of uh, Piaget's thoughts on this developmental process. So babies start out in what he called the sensory motor stage. That lasts for about the first two years. And uh, their way of organizing information uh, is entirely based on their physical interactions with the world. Uh, so, you know, things like grasping and sucking and uh, things like that. Uh, and through those first two years, they're starting to try and figure out concrete. They're, you know, trying to understand the physical world. So ar- around, you know, the eight-month to one-year um, range, they start getting this, uh, you know, the idea of object permanence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just because I don't see it, it still exists, which is why babies love peekaboo. <laughs> because they're you're playing with reality. He exists. He doesn't exist. He exists. He doesn't exist. <laughs> it's magic. Yeah. Um, you get, uh, I'm, I'm skipping a whole bunch of stuff. I'm really, uh, oversimplifying. As we uh, all Piaget have here. to oh, do. Yes, we are. Yes. Uh, you get to like uh, you know, age uh, two to seven, you get into the pre-operational uh, stage. And here we start seeing another one of these uh, kind of blurry, blurred distinctions, distinctions between the concrete and the abstract because children are thinking 
uh, and you know their thought is symbolic, which is an abstract type of thing. Yeah. But their thinking is tied to uh, the concrete world and doesn't necessarily follow anything resembling earth logic. Uh, so children at this stage, for example, uh, have difficulty understanding uh, others' perspectives. I don't mean like their, you know, their emotional perspective or something like that, but uh, if I'm standing on one side of a closed door and you're standing on the other side of a closed door, um, you can't see what I see. That, that kind of perspective taking. So children, can, they, uh, in this pre-operational stage, they just kind of assume that, well, I can see it, therefore it's there, so everyone knows it's there, everyone can see it. Um, they, you know, they also have difficulty uh, differentiating between things like you know, living and versus non-living things. So if anything's active, they think it's alive. So, you know, is the sun alive? Well, yes, it's give, sending light out. Mm-hmm. That's an activity. So, um, Or robots, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, don't get me started again. Like we have because we start talking that... about robots <laughs> and the question of possible uh, robot sentience uh-huh. and all that. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, we're just, uh-huh. all right. We don't have time to do no, that. Okay, <laughs> we are we are racking up the future episodes. Yeah, uh, right now this is this is good. I like our creative process here. Uh, so yeah, uh, age seven is a pivotal moment for Piagetian thinking. Um, the around age 7 to 11 is the stage of concrete operations and here we get some proper logical systematic thinking capacities uh, but they're still tied to the concrete objects uh, so they don't really do abstract uh, so you know this is why when you are doing things like trying to teach them math uh, you go with the uh, concrete example. So, you know, you have five apples and I take two apples away. How many apples is that? Uh, or, you know, and, and you can train kids <clears throat> to do math on paper with the symbols of numbers. Yep. But there's often a conversion process. So you'll see a seven-year-old, for example, if you write down the numbers, you know, like, you know, five minus two, uh, they'll look at it and then they'll hold up their fingers. Mm-hmm. And then that's how they answer the question. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're getting it. They're 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 getting the, co- the these concepts. They're, so they're able to think uh, logically and systematically. Uh, uh, this is where they start figuring out things like conservation of matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if I have uh, water in a cup and I pour it into the glass, it's the same water, mm-hmm. uh, even if the glass is narrower than the cup. So the water level is higher. That doesn't mean there's more. Yeah. Um, you know, th- they're able to think through things like the tr- uh, reversibility of transformations. So if I take that water, uh, I put it in the freezer, now it's ice. Uh, and then I take the ice out and thought it's still the same water. Mm. So, uh, so they're able to think through those sorts of things. But it's not until uh, after age 12 uh, that uh, young people start getting the ability uh, to really engage in uh, you know, systematic, logical, abstract thought. And this, uh, according to Piaget, influences all sorts of areas of functioning. Uh, so things like morality. So if you're trying to teach a child morality, if the child is, say, you know, four years old, uh, trying to work abstract moral principles with them is not going to work. Uh, you know, do as I say because I'm your father and you're going to get sent to time out because, you know, I said, don't steal your sister's toy or something like that. That's a level they can understand morality. Mm. Um, 
as for the innateness part, this this gets you know, also more interesting uh, because a lot of people um, who uh, you know they they start reading about Piaget and uh, they think that he's describing a natural you know genetically innate uh, maturational process, but he didn't actually teach that. Um, Piaget said that uh, this is a consistent pattern, so there is something hardwired about this sequence. Okay, but the sequence itself. Now, it, the the, pro, the progression through the sequence and the outcome of the sequence comes about through the interactions between uh, the individual and the environment. Uh, so uh, you, we need teaching in order to make progress. And, uh, you know, so the, then the question would be, you know, what, what happens if we don't have this teaching? Would we, in fact, develop abstract thought? Uh, and... I mean, you know, that that's a pretty difficult one to uh, work with, since uh, if we do, you know, global comparisons, we look all around. Uh, pretty much everybody has abstract thought, uh, and everybody teaches each other abstract thought. Mm. There's an interesting connection back to one of our earlier episodes, way back in March 2018, uh, when we were talking about uh, the uh, the short story in the movie Arrival. Oh yeah, uh, we were. Mm. Yeah, uh, uh, I mentioned the uh, the Paraha. Uh, in uh, in the Amazon, and you know they're back now. Okay, so the the Paraha uh, because uh, the Paraha have no abstract numbers. Uh, they have concrete numbers, but fewer than ten. Hmm. And uh, whenever people try to talk with them about it, uh, it's you know that they, they it just doesn't. It just doesn't register. So if you've got ten sticks in front of you, that's ten sticks. Okay. Well, what if? It, is there a ten without the sticks? Uh-huh. Well, no. You took the sticks away. Okay. So you've got ten sticks and you've got ten rocks. What do they have in common? Well, one sticks and one's rocks. I don't know what you're talking about. It's about ten. The number ten. Yeah. Well, yeah. You got ten sticks and you got ten rocks. Um, and uh, some of the anthropologists. Uh, who have uh, you know lived with and studied and talked with and stuff like that? The Paraha have tried to do things like tried to teach them to be able to count to ten at an abstract level, and usually it doesn't work because they get bored and go do something else. Um, and it's it's not like there's anything wrong with Paraha brains; they're just as intelligent as everybody else. It this is just not a thing they do. So. That's really interesting. I mean, that, yeah, so that... Uh, I have so many questions, but we... Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we probably cannot get all, down into all of that. But, yeah, that's really interesting, yeah. Continue, sorry. <laughs> oh, no, that was that was what I had there. Oh, so, okay. uh, yeah, so um, there is some there is some strong evidence that something is innate, <laughs> and I don't want to lean too heavily on what uh, some scholars call the anthropological veto, uh, this idea that if if I can find one group of people anywhere, anytime who don't do something, that means it's not part of human nature. Uh-huh. Okay. That's not the great I argument. I just learned a new phrase. I like that. Anthropological veto. Yeah. yeah. yeah okay. Cool. Um, and, you know, and of, and of course, the, the, different, the, the, the nature-nurture question is not a simple question either. So sure. uh, if we're going to talk about is something innate, something hardwired to human nature, uh, versus is it something taught, well, it's not either or. Um, hmm. It's both and. So I don't know. Maybe we could say that there, you know, since abstract thought is something that exists globally and throughout history, that uh, certainly uh, the, at least the capacity for abstract thought 
is something that's hardwired in our species. Uh, even if, uh, you know, maybe there could be environmental conditions like growing up among the Paraha uh, where those capacities are not actualized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I would be surprised if there was a total absence of abstract yeah, thought among the, And, of the, course, it depends people, on what right? level of abstract, right? We have different levels right. and concepts. I mean, yeah. I, and I focused on abstract numbers. Mm-hmm. I mean, it does go a bit be, uh, bro, uh, beyond that when we uh, talk <clears throat> about the Paraha. They also don't have a past tense mm. in their language. So they don't have any concept of history, genealogy, mythology, art. They, they don't tell stories. There are people who who don't tell stories. It's it's hmm. so unusual. That, so interesting. That is that is very interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I, I so I I did want to bring up something that's related to this about you mentioned the paraha and and how they don't appear to have this you know abstract uh, number concept or concept of the past. Both of these abstract type things, and I was thinking about. Um, uh, certain types of uh, development disorders like um, autism. So, I, I, uh, full disclosure, I'm a parent of an autistic child myself. Um, he's pretty young, um, but he is uh, undergoing um, uh, therapy right now, to, um, and which is which is he's doing pretty well. But uh, with with and of course, autism is is a spectrum, uh, and there's various degrees of it. But the, some basic characteristics of autism involve an impairment in um, social uh, cognition, uh, uh, understanding, um, for example, what, that what other people are inferring, what other people are thinking on, based on um, their facial expressions and um, their words um, or, and, and, and such like that. Um, they often have trouble making eye contact uh, and speaking, um, even speaking in a uh, social manner. But also, uh, uh, more generally, there there's, there seems to be some trouble, at least in some degree, in some types of abstract thought, uh, impairments in, in that kind of abstract thinking, similar to what you were, were talking about with uh, Baraha. Uh, so, um, for example, uh, counting, um, uh, an autistic child may um, need to actually count physical objects um, in order to get the concept of a number, but... Uh, on the other hand, some some autistic children are very very good with numbers, which uh, uh, just numbers as numbers, um, to the point that they can just calculate things like a whiz without having any concrete examples in front of them. So the the it's really a very fascinating uh, um, disorder or or whatever you want to call it. Fascinating. Uh, um, type of thinking because not all of uh, thinking uh, the autistic thinking is pathological of course um but uh and, and this is something that i'm very much interested in uh as i'm watching my own son grow is like i i'm kind of in between this this idea of okay is this really an impairment and uh, a thought or abstract thinking you know or is it just another you know mode of human thought you know um that the rest of us just don't get very well, or is it some combination? And this gets back to the question, of course. I mean, clearly we are not going to say that a dog with three legs is not a dog, um, right? In the same way as, um, and this is an abstract concept, right? A meta-abstract concept, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we, we, um, we, we, wouldn't necess- we wouldn't say that, oh, a human being who cannot think abstractly is 
not really fully human because they don't, you know, this is where the danger comes in of like trying to tie concepts like the image of God to this particular type of thinking, right? Um, certainly that's something that I'm very much interested in, in teasing out, but of course we could spend, uh, you know, another hour more talking about that kind of thing. But I, I, these were just things that were going through my head both before the episode and while you were talking about this with the Paraha and said, yeah, you know, there's, there's, these are questions that affect um, a lot of different, uh, um, quote-unquote, developmental disorders or, or mental hmm. um, disorders and things. So do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, Todd or Charles, I, I mean, either one. I just Yeah, I don't have uh, uh, hardly anything in the way of expertise when it comes to uh, autism or uh, other developmental conditions. Uh, one thing I will say is, you know, in, in complete agreement with you, if we start doing th- things like uh, a, a rational uh, image of God uh, sort of idea, that we need to be very careful where we go with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, I mean, that that opens up all sorts of possibilities. And there, there are quite a number of theologians uh, who just don't go Aristotelian uh, with that. Um, one example I'm thinking about, uh, you know, uh, Stanley Grenz, uh, who's a uh, theologian who, uh, emphasi- who emphasized a, a social Trinitarian uh, image of God uh, in his theology, which, you know, sidesteps that question hmm. because what, what, whatever one's neurological state, uh, we still exist in relation uh, to each other and to the Lord. Uh, so, sure. you know, that's, that takes care of that part yeah. of uh, things. Um, I, I like that, actually. I hadn't, I hadn't come across that concept. That's fascinating. There we go. Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe I'll throw in a plug. Uh, cause, you know, so listeners, mark this for I don't know how long it takes for my positive psychology textbook to get published. Uh, but uh, when uh, my positive psychology and Christian perspective textbook uh, gets published, uh, I devote a lot to uh, connecting this uh, social uh, image of God uh, to psychological concepts of uh, human nature and flourishing. So there we go. I've I've plugged a book that hasn't been published yet. <laughs> but will cool. Be. Yes. Indeed. Todd, do you have anything? So yeah, if uh, if you want to know more, uh, you can find uh, things like uh, you know Stanley Grenz's book uh, "Created for Community." Stanley Grenz. Uh, I have heard that good one, one actually. Yeah. Okay. Stanley. Yeah. Okay. Um, did you have anything to add to that? Well, Todd? I was I was just going to say that. Um, you know, one of the things that we, when talking about the image of God in, in human beings, um, I, I think you can, you can carefully add abstract thought, abstract thinking to the list of many things, right? It's a manifold uh, image of God, if you will. Mm. And um, the existence of brokenness in a physical sense or in a mental sense and so forth does not deny that label yeah of image of god so um you know there are there are all manner of of ways in which we um because of the nature of our biology um being fallen um don't exhibit this trait or that trait that one might include in a large uh, collection of things that, that, that mark human beings out as, 
bearers of, of God's image. That's merely one of them, right? Uh, this concept of abstract thinking. And if, yeah. if some people have impairment for whatever reason, uh, that doesn't deny the label. Yeah. So, and like, you know, yeah. I mean, like we already said that, it, you know, it, these abstract thinking and is a very broad category, right? And, and it just, right. you may have an ability to think in one kind of abstract manner, but not another, you know. Indeed. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I, I like that. Yeah. And, and on this idea of uh, whether or not autism is in fact a disorder or if it's just an uh, alternate way of thinking, um, I don't know. My the, just being me, my first inclination is to go with the both. Yeah, I, and say I, it's complicated. Yeah, that's exactly um, what I think too. So I, I'm yeah. with you there. Yeah, I'd, I'd be open to uh, you know getting into some of the scholarly literature and trying to see what the arguments are about that. One mm-hmm. thing that uh, came to my mind uh, on that topic, uh, and, and this idea that we revise our ideas of about what is pathology and what is not pathology. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we go back to uh, you know Sigmund Freud, uh, Sigmund Freud thought that. Um, being an introvert uh, was pathological. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, and, and then, it, then it was Jung uh, who came along and said, no, these are just, you know, different, um, you know, modes of thinking mm-hmm. and, you know, different modes of operation. So, yeah, could uh, the, there's possibilities. I'm, I'm open to doing my homework on this. Yeah, and, and I should mention that, that uh, the, all the, I've read a lot of literature on autism uh, for obvious reasons, Um and uh, one of the things I've uh, I've come across is uh, you know when, in these kinds of therapies that they that that, that are done for autistic uh, children in particular is to designed in uh, in some ways in some of it at least to help the the, the kids think more abstractly and and, it, and in this very similar manner to how you would teach anybody you know you start out with concrete right you bootstrap up to a more abstract concept like you were mentioning um charles about you know uh uh seven-year-olds six-year-olds seven-year-olds adding numbers right and they they, they count their fingers right when they're like oh what's seven plus two okay well, you know and then they count their fingers and then they get the answer and that gives them the right answer at some point you do that enough, it's almost like some switch is flipped. And now you don't need that concrete anymore. You can do it. You, get a, you develop rules, uh, um, in, intuitive rules or whatever, um, abstract rules for how to add numbers together. Certainly when I'm adding you know, numbers together in my head uh, or, even, or whatever, you know, um, I don't sit there and visualize some intermediate step of a number of objects, okay, except maybe... Uh, you know, no pun intended, in the very abstract sense of, you know. And uh, so it seems like where we were talking earlier about, you know, nature versus nurture, it seems like certainly I feel like you, 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 can, you can drill this enough, even from a concrete perspective, that it eventually switches over to an abstract. You know, it's like almost like, and this is the really the wrong way of putting it, but almost like fake it till you make it, you know. <laughs> you know, uh, but you get what I'm saying, right? Um, mm-hmm. That's that's something that I've been yeah. um, reading about. It's uh, I find that fascinating. And um, but uh, we should start heading for the door here. But um, <laughs> speaking of fascinating, so Todd, I know that y- this was sort of this episode was your idea. So um, uh, can and you seem really excited about doing it. So um, can you briefly? I, I mean, I'm just curious. Is that a <laughs> sure curiosity? Can you sure. can you explain what? And I know you've already kind of 
uh, explicate a lot of this or expound a lot yep. of this, but uh, can you say what, what, what really, what fascinates you so much about this? Yeah. Topic? Yeah. Well, um, like you say, I did, I, I, I did sort of let it fly a little bit in the, in, in, in the first uh, portion of our, of our discussion here, but you know, really it, it, it largely just stems from experiencing certain texts that then led me down this road to think about this kind of thing. So in our first year common course, as I've mentioned, um, uh, we teach, we teach from the Republic. We don't teach the whole thing. Um, but we do teach from, uh, the portions surrounding the allegory of the cave and whatnot. And, and so this whole idea of platonic forms, this whole idea of seeing the reality behind the, the concrete, um, is something that is just every time I teach it, I gain insight from the exercise of going through it with my students. Um, and also several years ago, although, um, you know, I, so well, several years ago, Nathan Gilmore and I, uh, worked on something of a, a walk through of Immanuel Kant's, uh, critique of pure reason, which you can find the blog entries on the, on the Christian Humanist blog. Uh, dear listeners, uh, where um, among other things, among many other things, which is part of the reason we got a bit bogged down and, and ultimately Nathan uh, limped the project on to a finish <laughs> after I got a little bit busy. Uh, Kant deals with the intelligibility of the very thing we're talking about, the intelligibility of abstract ideas. Mm -hmm. um, he talks in that work about the reality of spatial relationships, length and breadth and so forth, the reality of geometry and um and and how that geometry and the ideas of spatial extension are are seem seem to be hardwired into our psyche mm -hmm. um the fact that we can even conceive of triangles or squares and whatnot and not necessarily be wedded to concrete examples or concrete you know uh, instances is something i find really intriguing um does the existence of something in the abstract in the conceptual or in the generalized sense, does it require the existence of examples in the concrete or not? Yeah, yeah. You know, once you have the idea of a three-sided or four-sided or five-sided figure, can you uh, go inductively then to in imagine in your mind's eye a 13-sided figure even if you've never seen one yeah. in nature? Um, and the same thing could be can hold for the ethical and moral realm, and, and Kant goes here too. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you can understand peace and goodwill and harmony among people, can you envision situations in which such exists, even if you've never seen it in you know instantiated in reality? In in in, well, I don't want to say reality, right? Because the idea of peace and harmony is real, just in a different even way. apart. Yeah, 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 yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I find myself sort of returning to these ideas every time we teach Plato, um, but also you know uh, periodically when I look at the big fat volume of Kant on my on my shelf, um, and I you know I, I still I still need to go back and 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 really dig into uh, you know his his conceptions of of geometry and so forth because I think it's it's fascinating. Yeah, no, that's great. I think that's a that's a great way to uh, to end. Um, if, uh, any final thoughts before we uh, close things down? Uh, just that uh, I tried one time to read Critique of Pure Reason, so 
The fact that the two of you did that project means my respect for you just grew tenfold. <laughs> well, I have not read well, it myself, although all, I hear about it all the time, and so I figure immense. I probably should at least attempt to. Yeah, it takes it takes a real dedicated effort, and mm. like I said, thanks to Nathan. <laughs> all right, because he, he 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 finished it up. It was it was uh yeah. There's a lot in there. So I guess um, I need to actually just go through um your the curriculum there, which I have not done. Maybe so. so. Maybe so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Um. Uh. Well. Um. That's great. Uh, it's a great way to end. So. Um, uh, what are we talking about next time? Uh, Charles, I believe you're going to be leaving that. Yes, I am. Uh, and we had a little bit of discussion uh, before we uh, got uh, going. And uh, what we're going to be talking about next time is DNA. Uh, we're going to be talking about you know, specifically the history of DNA. Uh, so that's, that's going to be a lot of fun. All right. Sounds great. All right, well, folks, until till next time, um, the Book of Nature podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Please contact us on our Facebook page or send an email to bookofnaturepodcast at gmail.com. That's bookofnaturepodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Also, if you love our show, please head over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. That will help spread the word and get more listeners involved. Until next time, this is Dan Dawson on behalf of Todd Pedler and Charles Hackney saying thanks for listening.